0: So please turn with me to Mark 9, 30 through 37. It's where we will behold and consider the wonders of God in his word this morning, Mark 9, 30 through 37. And and just as we have already been alluding to, oftentimes this world tells us that we should chase after certain things in order to make ourselves great that the way to greatness is through our own efforts putting ourselves first There's, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the saying it's a dog eat dog world out there I remember hearing that growing up I was like what is that even saying I couldn't even really understand it but what, it, what, it, what, the, what does the business world mean when it says this we're familiar it means look out for yourself Look out for number one, right? If you want to get anywhere, you need to make sure you put yourself first. It doesn't matter what it costs anybody else. If they get in your way, get them out of your way. The way to greatness is to make a name for yourself. Well, performance is also key. You need to do great things if you want to be great, right? But there's another strategy in the world, particularly the business world, to achieve success and greatness that, uh, that, we, that might be a good analogy for us to step into here. It's called networking. This has been all the rage the last few years with the advent of social media. Networking. It's not as much about who you are or what you have done. Rather, networking is more about who you know. This is what leads to greatness and success, right? Who you know. Perhaps, like I said, this might be a helpful analogy for us as we consider uh, the ways of the kingdom of God. Our passage is in Mark 9, 30 through 37 today, reveals that in the kingdom of God, greatness is not about who you are or what you have done, but rather, it is all about who you know. Now, we've learned quite a bit in Mark so far. We're about a little over halfway through, and, and, and we've reached kind of a, a, a turning point in Mark right? We've, we've learned up to this point that the Messiah will usher in the kingdom of God. That is, that is what is made known at the outset, and Mark front-loaded his gospel with these great acts of power and authority that Jesus did. But here in this back half, we see that the kingdom of God will be ushered in by Christ actually through suffering. The turning point was Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, in Mark 8, 27 through 30, remember Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And we said that that built into that confession was, was this idea that Jesus is the promised son of David. Jesus, the promised son of God who would bring God's kingdom to bear on the earth finally. And right after Peter confessed that, what did Jesus do? Well, he gave the first of three so-called passion predictions and said that he would suffer, die, and resurrect. So we also learned that the kingdom would come through suffering. We learned something else. We learned that you cannot confess the Christ without confessing something about yourself as well. If you confess Christ as his followers, then as one commentator said that we noted, when believers confess who Jesus is, they also inevitably confess who they must become. So when we confess Jesus as Christ, we confess him as the suffering Christ who will bring God's kingdom, but we also confess that we must follow him in this way. And Jesus went on to explain that. He said, this world will tell you that to gain life, to gain true life and joy, you have to to try to save and hold on to your life. But Jesus says, no, the way of the kingdom of God is to deny the claim you have on your life for the sake of Christ. And there, through Christ, you get true life because you get God himself. And if you get God, you get life. Well, this passage this morning, parallels very closely with what, we've, what, we've, what we just saw, because here we will have a second passion prediction, and now instead of, instead of life, Jesus is going to say something about greatness. If you want greatness, then it doesn't look like what the world says, holding on to greatness and trying to make a name for yourself. Rather, it looks like losing and letting go of that greatness for the sake of Christ. And getting God himself. And if you get God, that is when you get greatness. And Jesus is the greatest of us all, the king and the only way to God. So if you know Jesus, then you know God. Greatness in the kingdom of God is all about who you know. So look with me at Mark nine thirty through 37. So we'll consider this passage in two parts. First, in verses 30 through 32, we will see the word of the gospel. The great king became last of all and servant of all, verses 30 through 32. Then, second, in verses 33 through 37, we will see the way of the gospel. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about who you know. So the word of the gospel in verses 30 through 32, the great king became last of all and servant of all, and the way of the gospel, verses 33 through 37, greatness in the kingdom of God is about who you know. So first, look with me at verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So remember where we have been. Jesus has has been in the north region of Caesarea Philippi, and, and, and a lot has happened on this journey. Peter has confessed Jesus as the Christ. Jesus has made known that the a path of suffering is what will bring the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus made clear that the way to true life is to, is to deny yourself and follow him. God revealed Jesus' divinity on top of the mountain in the transfiguration with the disciples, declared him his son, and said, listen to him. And then Jesus rescued a boy from an unclean spirit and rescued a man, the boy's father, from his unbelief, and that's just the tail end of the journey. We haven't even mentioned Jesus healing the, the blind man at Bethsaida, or or the feeding of the four thousand, and the Decapolis, uh, the healing of the deaf and mute man, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. The list goes on. They've been on a long journey, but now they are headed back home. We will see in verse thirty three on the way to Capernaum. This is home base for them. They're back in the region of Galilee or home turf, and Jesus did not want anyone to know. Why? Well, verse 31 tells us, for he was teaching his disciples. So just consider this, it's been a flurry of activity. Jesus, the Son of God, is in high demand. Everywhere he goes, people are needing and looking for him. And what does he desire? He desires to have some uninterrupted time with his disciples to teach them. Now, he is always teaching them, and, uh, and we know this, but why does, why does Mark point it out here? Why make it a point here? Well, how are the disciples doing? We know for a bit that they're, we know for, for a fact that they're probably a bit shaken at the moment, right? They've just had the, their ideas of what the kingdom of God looks like, and the Messiah completely reconfigured. Uh, three of them have just witnessed witnessed uh, Jesus being transfigured in a mind-bending way that they didn't even know what was going on, saw Elijah and Moses heard the voice of God, and then finally, some of them realized that they couldn't even cast out a demon. So they have a lot going on, a lot of questions, a lot of things have not been going perhaps the way they think it should be. So the disciples are probably in a a need of a, a little bit of reassurance and a little bit of clarity. So Jesus teaches them. It's just amazing to see who Jesus is. He desires to take personal time with his confused disciples in order to help them understand. He could be doing any number of things... But what he takes the time to do is to continue to shape them, continue to form them into who they should be. You and I would have given up on these disciples probably five chapters ago, maybe maybe even sooner than that. But here Jesus just continues to teach them, continues to shape them. This is the patience of our Lord that he shows even to us. And what's he teaching them? Well, he's teaching them the same thing he just taught them says, for he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So this is the second so-called passion prediction. Jesus has said this once before. The way he, the Messiah, will victoriously usher in God's kingdom is going to be through his suffering and death. And he does this again because the disciples still do not get it. They don't have a category for the Messiah delivering in this way. Jesus, we know you're the Messiah and the Christ who has come to bring God's kingdom, but how can you die? That doesn't make any sense. But Jesus is making clear that again, by doubling down, that this is exactly how it will happen. The son of man of Daniel 7, who receives authority and a kingdom from God that will last forever, that happens in this way. This is the word of the gospel. The Messiah will suffer, die, and resurrect. In a few verses, we will see Jesus begin to describe what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. He will say, if you would be first, that is preeminent, then you must be last of all and servant of all. So here in the, in the word of the gospel, we see the greatness of King Jesus, who would literally be last of all and servant of all in order to save. We're starting to see that, but we'll come back to that. So the disciples still do not have a category for this. Note their response. What is it? Ignorance and fear. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So they did not understand, literally, what we've been saying. This this means the idea of ignorance. It's this complete lack of a category for something. But what do they do with this lack of understanding? Well, they don't go to Jesus with it. In fact, this actually makes things a little bit worse by keeping it to themselves. They were afraid to ask Jesus about it. What are they really afraid of here? Uh, We know that Jesus has corrected and rebuked their notions before. And we've seen the the disciples be afraid of Jesus. When he calmed the storm, they they feared him. But this was an awe and a wonder type of fear that, that moved them towards him. Here, this fear makes them withdraw from Jesus. Why? Well, I think this... Fear is a common thread with regard to jesus 's passion predictions. Consider the three different times Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. First, we saw it in mark eight thirty one through thirty three What was the reaction? Peter rebuked Jesus right? This certainly could have come from a place of fear. This is not how I think it should happen. What are you talking about? Peter rebukes him Well now consider this passage we have in front of us. There is fear explicitly mentioned, but also in the third and final prediction of Jesus's death and resurrection in Mark 10, 32 through 34, there Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And we know from parallel accounts that that Jesus has made clear to the disciples, this is where this suffering and death will happen in Jerusalem. So, so Mark tells us that they're on their way to Jerusalem, and the disciples were afraid. Mark 10, 32 through 34. And then Jesus tells them again exactly what will happen. He will be crucified and resurrect. He will die and resurrect. So what's, what's the point here? I think the disciples are afraid that what Jesus is saying is actually true. <laughs> they don't want him to die. And then perhaps there's this idea of what does that mean for us if this is how it happens? So I think we, we see a little bit of Jesus' purpose for continuing to teach this. Not only does he know that they don't get it, But he also knows that it really scares them. So he's not just telling them to keep them scared, to just keep scaring them. That's not his point. Jesus is preparing them for what will happen. They, even though they don't have a category for it, Jesus says this as a word of future comfort. Right? You don't understand this now, but you will need to understand it later when all this happens. He's also showing them he's in complete control. We've said this over and over again as we've gone through Mark and we keep seeing it. God will take us through things that we have no category for, that we cannot figure out why is this going on. We won't understand, but later we'll realize it had prepared us for something that we didn't expect. And that teaching will be a great comfort to you. And it would be a great comfort to the disciples. So... But the disciples, rather than bringing their confusion to Jesus, withhold it. I wonder what would have happened if they would have come to Jesus with their confusion. Perhaps a rebuke, maybe, yeah. We've seen them do that before. But I think ultimately, he would have given them some comfort. This is who God is. Even the Messiah that Isaiah talks about bringing God's salvation, Isaiah 51, 12, I am he who comforts you. If they would have came to Jesus with their questions, he would have taught them. How do we know? Because that's what he ends up doing anyway. So the disciples perhaps need a little bit of humility. Fear can often manifest and masquerade as a, a, a self-exaltation, rather, and pride can often manifest and masquerade as Fear. And we know that for a fact because what happens in the next verses is we see that the disciples are concerned about their greatness, right? But Jesus will give them a lesson in greatness in the kingdom of God in order to work humility into their hearts. So look at verses 33 through 37, the way of the gospel. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about who you know. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So here in verses 33 through 37, we're going to see two parts. First, in verses 33 through 34, we're going to see a reproof. Jesus will gently reprove the disciples for their misguided notions on greatness. And then second, in verses 35 through 37, we're going to see a lesson in kingdom greatness. And that lesson will be made up of first a teaching, then an illustration, and then an explanation. We'll see all of that here. But first, let's look at verse 33, the reproof. So they arrive in Capernaum and come to what is probably Peter's house again, where they've been before, home base. And, and Jesus is going to reprove his disciples. Where do we see this? Well, verse 33 says, And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? The word choice here is important. This word discussing is a word we've seen before, just translated different ways. We saw it in Mark 2, 6. When the Pharisees and scribes were, were questioning in their hearts about Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic, Jesus responded to them by saying, Why do you question in your hearts? That's the same word, this idea of internally deliberating. We also saw it in Matthew eight sixteen when the disciples were discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. We know there they are completely missing the mark, if you recall. So, the common thread in each of these situations is that the discussion or questioning was meant to be private. This wasn't meant to go any further than the disciples. They're discussing among themselves. They didn't want necess- necessarily want Jesus' input on this, right? We know that uh, Jesus, when he asks a question, he usually knows the answer to it, he always knows. We need to remember that as much as adults as, as kids do usually, right? <laughs> but we know that Jesus, when he asked this question, he already knows the answer, and the point is proven because the disciples, what is their reaction? Silence. But they kept silent. Why? For they had ar- For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They kept silent because they had been caught red-handed, right? The picture here is like that of a parent who knows... Their kids in the other room are doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Have any experience with this? What does what the parent call out? Kids, what are you doing in there? You, and, and what are they really saying? Translation. Kids, quit tying up your brother and throwing him around. There will be no little brother football in the house today. And the kids look at each other with shock and awe. How did mom know we were doing that? That's the picture here. Jesus is saying, why are you guys discussing along the way about who will be the greatest? Have you not just, have you not been taking in what I've just shown you and just been telling you? I will die to bring the kingdom of God. You don't, you don't get life by holding on to it. You let go of it, deny your claim on this life. Why are you guys discussing about who will be the greatest? This whole scene really does uh, take on a picture of, of a parent correcting his children. It's interesting that Jesus didn't stop them along the way, right? It says along the way they were discussing this. And Jesus didn't say anything to them on the way. Why did he wait until they got to the house to talk to him about it? I think it was to let them indulge themselves in order to see what was truly in their hearts. We know that this is the nature of God, right? And we see in Deuteronomy 8, 2, God sells Israel. You wandered 40 years in the wilderness so that you would be tested so that you would know what was in your heart. It's a testing not so God knows what's in your heart, whether you will keep the commandments or not. It was a testing so that they would know what was in their own hearts. Here, Jesus lets his disciples discuss and indulge themselves about who would be the greatest so that they prove to themselves this is who you would be without me intervening in this situation. You would be after your greatness. So, Jesus lets them lets them run their course in sin without it coming without letting it come to its complete end. He does stop them, and given their sheepish silence, the point seems to be proven. They understood what he was saying. Before we move on, have you ever off, have you ever also wondered why the disciples might even be uh, having this discussion in the first place? especially after hearing all that they've heard. Why, what, what moves them to have this discussion? Well, what have they seen? We know three of them have just seen Jesus transfigured in a maybe the singularly greatest event of divine revelation, Jesus, the Son of God, being transfigured before their eyes. Perhaps they're feeling pretty good about themselves, right? Perhaps they're feeling pretty privileged Meanwhile, their counterparts, you guys are down there, you can't even cast out an unclean spirit, but we're up here beholding the glory of God, right? Our hearts can co-opt grace in our lives and make it about ourselves, right, rather than the one who gives it. Paul even warns about this, doesn't he? He said, I I know a man who went to the third heaven had revelations that surpassed all, all greatness, surpassing revelations and to keep me from being conceited about this. God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Even Paul himself would have been prone to pride for the things that God had privileged him to see. This is how bad our hearts are. We will co-opt grace and make it a reason to puff ourselves up, to think we're great on our own. So in light of this greatness debate, Jesus will offer his disciples a lesson in what true greatness is, what true greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Look at verses 35 through 37. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sends me. Him who sent me. So before we begin to unpack these verses, again, just be aware of how remarkable of a man our divine king is. He just caught the disciples red handed in their sin. And what's his next move? It's not to berate. It's not to add insult to injury. It's not to exasperate them by holding their sin over their head. No, he sits down and says, come here. And he begins to teach them. He says, I know that you don't get this. But you are in need of more mercy, more grace. And I will not stop shaping you and bringing you along in this. They don't lose relationship with him. They're invited into further relationship with him. He he says, listen to me, I will show you the way. Something to admire for all of us, especially for us as parents. As we mentioned, so much of this account takes on that color, doesn't it? Parents lovingly correcting their children, who literally just don't know any better. Our king teaches us. This is how he teaches us. So first, Jesus offers a teaching. And this teaching, we've noted, parallels his teaching on life in the kingdom of God. He gives them a teaching on greatness. And perhaps it gives us some clarity of what greatness is here because he equates it to being First. Now, this idea of first is is one of order, prominence. You You are number one as opposed to being last. You're first in the order of value, first in the order of things, rather than being last. You are preeminent. He also contrasts it with being a servant. So being first looks like being superior. Your value of being first means that you should be served by all. People should wait on you He contrasts this with being a servant. So in the world's economy, if one wants to be the greatest to be first, they have to reach out and take it. They must elevate themselves, cast all others aside, even, even walk across a couple of bodies, if they must, to be able to go and attain greatness. However, in the kingdom of God, Jesus says it's exact opposite. Just like with true life in the kingdom, you have to deny yourself for the sake of Christ. Here, you have to let go of greatness. Don't go after greatness for yourself, but for the sake of Christ, let go of greatness and become last of all, servant of all. This is the only way to greatness in the kingdom of God greatness, then, is beginning to sound a lot like what Jesus just described in his prediction of his betrayal, death, and resurrection. Because Jesus was least of all and servant of all in his life and in his death, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because of our sin nature, we could have never perfectly been last of all, and servant of all. Our sinful ego would not allow it. But Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to be obedient and obedient to death, even on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. Greatest by becoming last of all and servant of all through his death on the cross. Jesus is the greatest of all. This is what saved you. It's perfectly pictured in Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. King of the universe, son of God, taking a towel, wrapping it around his waist, bending down and washing the dirty feet of these disciples who are arguing about who is the greatest. Who's the greatest? Let me show you what it looks like. Servant of all. Because Jesus was last of all and servant of all, you have access into this greatness. There's more, though. This will not stop. In the kingdom of God, we will know even greater levels of God's hospitality. Wrap your minds around this. Luke Luke records Jesus' parable in, in Luke 12 about a master leaving his house and leaving his servants to keep his house in order. Jesus says, be like the servants who are eagerly awaiting their master's return so that when he knocks on the door, you can open it and welcome him. And Jesus says, if you are like this, awaiting my return, What awaits you? The master comes in. In verse 37, it says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. When we enter into the kingdom of God in its fullness at at, at Jesus' return, the same King Jesus, who set aside his glory in order to save you, will once again set aside his glory in order to serve you in the new heavens and new earth. This is the greatness of our King. You can never outgive or outdo God's greatness. You can never outgive or outdo God's hospitality. So, the call of the gospel is to surrender to the greatest one of us all, King Jesus, who is the servant you or I never could be. If you get Christ, you get God. And if you get God, you get greatness, because that is who he is. He defines greatness. That's what Jesus will go on to illustrate in verses 36 and 37. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them. So we'll just stop there, this verse, take it at once. Here's the illustration of what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus just offered a teaching in what the kingdom of God looks like, and here he illustrates it. What's the illustration? He takes a child, puts them in the midst of these disciples, arguing about greatness. Now, in this society, a child would be On the rung of greatness, on the scale of greatness, they're at the bottom. Jesus puts them in the middle and then takes him up in his arms in a loving embrace. That's the idea here. It's a hug. Now, in this picture, who is the most prominent, the greatest person in this picture? We've just made a pretty clear case. It's Jesus himself, right? Unquestionably the greatest But in this picture, who looks like the greatest? It's the child whom society would say has no value on the greatness scale. He doesn't move the needle in this culture. He's being picked up and elevated above all others embraced in this man's arms who happens to be the son of God. There's only one person in this picture here who is getting a hug from the God of the universe. It's this child. And this child is great not because of anything he did or who he is or who the world says he is. He's great because the Son of God says, you get my full affection. I hold you in my arms. If you haven't concluded yet, you and I are this child in Christ, elevated to greatness because Christ The God of all creation wraps you in his arms, takes you up, and gives you a hug. Loved and hugged by God. But Jesus will go on to make the point that what he is doing is also an example to follow. So he offers an explanation. Look at verse 37. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So Jesus says that when when one receives or welcomes a lowly child in his name, one receives or welcomes Jesus himself. Now, what Jesus has just exemplified this. He received and welcomed this child into his arms, and Jesus is essentially saying, you go and do as I have done. Now, it can be specific to something like this, but it's also a general example of of this is what the disposition and the heart of a disciple of me should be. Taking up a child would be not considered a noble task necessarily. In fact, it would be considered a lowly task in the eyes of the world. However, if such a lowly task is done with a view to to Christ and who God is and in your identity as, as a child of God, then such an act welcomes Christ and receives Christ. And if you receive Christ, you have God. And God defines greatness so so the, the logic of, of the kingdom here is, is not that one becomes great by who they are or what they do, but because they receive the only true great one. Greatness in the kingdom of God is, is, is not about who you are or what you do. It's actually the opposite. It doesn't matter if, if you do the lowliest task and you're the lowliest person. If you're in Christ, you have God and you have greatness. Because God is great. Or if you are the highest person in society doing the most noble task. It doesn't matter. But if you're doing that with a view to Christ and who God is and you are in Christ, you have greatness. That's what gives you greatness. The God who defines greatness. If you Do your work in Christ's name and serve in Christ's name no matter who you are or what the world says of you. God, in love, has imbued you with greatness. So how do we apply this? Well, we've already pointed out some gospel applications. But but first, consider this. We should do everything we do in Jesus' name. That is in accordance with who he is in every regard. He did everything for God and for love of others and for God's glory. Therefore, we do the same. First Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. When you do this, you do great things. Which leads to our second point. Even if it's the littlest task in the eyes of the world... You do great things when you do it in Christ's name. Whether you're raising children, cleaning up a messy house, doing dishes, changing diapers, reflecting on Gigi right now, mowing the lawn, closing a deal at work, meeting a new client, punching out some emails on Friday, making a sale, doing some accounting, drafting some plans, It doesn't matter what you do when you do it in Christ's name as a child of God. Your work moves beyond this temporary life and rises up to heaven and is etched in the kingdom of heaven in God's throne room as glory and praise to him. You do great things. As a child of God. Nobody else who is apart from Christ can say this about their work. That no matter what you're doing, it can have eternal value. Because you are God's child. Christian work is never meaningless or minor. When it is done in Christ's name. Third, we can take this passage and apply it very literally. We must welcome and we must serve. It's the, the picture here, right? Jesus gives us this illustration of what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like, and it's instructive for us. It's not, it's not of any little thing that Jesus chose to use the example of, of, of welcoming a child. When we are hospitable, we are hospitable to the least of these When we serve, we especially seek to serve the least. When we welcome, we seek to serve those who are marginalized and rejected, the least of these. The Christian disposition should be hospitality, welcome, and service because this is what God has shown us. He has been infinitely hospitable to us. I'm, I'm so thankful that we have a hospitable church where we welcome each other, we serve one another. Let us not lose that. Even what we're going out to do today is, is, is an application of this because we're going out to our neighborhood and we're saying, hey, we're here, we're your neighbors, let us know if we can serve you or help you in any way. The Christian is hospitable because God has been infinitely Hospitable to us. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is marginalized. Society may marginalize and shove people to the margins, but in the kingdom of God, in the household of faith, this should not be. So our prayer should be to, to find more ways here at DGCC to, to make that hospitality visible that we would welcome people in, that we would fellowship in a way. Let people, if they hear of DGCC, say they are a welcoming and hospitable people. This will go a long way in pointing others to who our God is, because he is a God of hospitality. So, I want to revisit Jesus's illustration to close here. We began by saying greatness in the kingdom of God is not about who you are or what you do, but rather who you know. There's a little bit of nuance here, right? And we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Greatness is certainly first and primarily about who God is. If you know him, you enter into that greatness. How? We saw it in the picture. He makes you his child. Through the gospel of Jesus, we're like this child who is swept up into the arms of the king of the universe and hugged and embraced by God. In this way, greatness in the kingdom of God is about who you are. Because you are a child of God. Greatness doesn't come from yourself. If it did, it could be lost. But the greatness comes from our Father who imbued us with his love and greatness, and that can never be lost. This is who you are. You are a child of God. The God of the universe in Christ hugs and embraces you. When he sees you, he smiles. If you stumble and mess up, he is there to correct and lovingly embrace, not to reject and shove away. This is the identity we go and live in. We are great because our father is great and says, In my son, I make you great in him. Come to me, my child, be embraced in my arms. This is who you are. Go and live in this identity. Remember that you are a child of God. Let's pray together.